Welcome to this bonus edition of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Welcome new listeners and welcome returning listeners. And I want to thank those of you who have been binging the episodes of Creator Talks. I've heard from you out there on Twitter, and I appreciate you finding them binge-worthy. Once you get caught up, I have a new episode every Thursday. But this week, I have a special bonus episode on Monday, because last week, the Black Panther made his long-awaited and highly anticipated debut in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a solo film. And to celebrate this most momentous occasion, I wanted to bring you a Black Panther-centric episode, a Marvel Comics Black Panther writer. So my guest on this episode is Evan Narcisse. He is the writer of Rise of the Black Panther. Evan confesses he is a comic book nerd, but he does not know every piece of Black Panther minutia in detail, but he does love the character and loves the creators who have worked on the series over the years, and he skillfully incorporates many of those elements and expands upon them in his series. It tells the story of the early, formative years of T'Challa as the Black Panther and King of Wakanda. Now, Evan is a senior writer at io9. He writes critiques of comic books. He has also written for Essence, The Washington Post, The Atlantic Monthly, and other publications. He's going to talk about Rise of the Black Panther, the creative team, working with Black Panther writer Tanahashi Coates, and looking at the creative teams on the Black Panther over the decades. So be prepared for a great discussion. And so let's begin my conversation with writer Evan Narcisse, here now on Creator Talks. Evan, welcome to Creative Talks. Thanks for having me, Chris. I must congratulate you, sir, for the opportunity to write about one of your favorite characters who's also coming to the MCU, Black Panther. And since this is the first time you've spoken, I would like to start out with your, your family, your work in comic book reading background before diving into your first and current series, Rise of the Black Panther. And I do this because I think it's essential for listeners of Creative Talks to get to know something about you and how it influences your work. So, Let's begin with your origin story. Your parents, they're both immigrants to the U.S.? Yes, that's right. Um, they both immigrated here from Haiti. In the late 60s, early 70s, they immigrated here from Haiti. While I'm getting divorced, my mom raised us primarily by herself. I grew up in Brooklyn uh, up until I was 10 years old, and then we moved out to Long Island. I lived there throughout college. And then middle of college, I started doing a lot of couch surfing um, with my friends in Brooklyn. Um, eventually moved to Brooklyn, and then I lived in Harlem for a little bit, uh, and then West Harlem. So I was the native New Yorker up until two years ago when I moved to um, Austin for my partner. She got a new job. And that's kind of my quick bio, quick non, non-nerd non bio. I mean, I was a nerd throughout all of that, so saying, non- <laughs> saying non-nerd is not necessarily accurate, but yeah. Texas is quite a change. How are you adjusting to that? Um, It's weird. You know, uh, I I miss New York terribly. It's in my bones. Um, But I do like a lot of what Austin has to offer. It's a very uh, uh, friendly city. It's a slower pace. It's a great food city. I miss the hustle and bustle and the kind of like cultural density of New York. But um, I'm sure there's stuff uh, here that I will miss if I ever actually move here. So, you know, you get used to each place you live in. Um, and I still feel like there's a lot of New York lingering in my in my brain that makes me feel super attached to it. And I, I probably will always will feel super attached to New York. But um, Austin's good. It's a fun city. You know, you're also very lucky that the very first comic book you picked up was in a barber shop, And the first one I picked up was off a spinner rack. So we're lucky to have that first contact with comics outside of a specialty shop or a bookstore or a movie because, well, that's becoming more and more rare for people. Where was the barbershop, and how old were you, and how did you feel after closing that comic book? I believe it was an issue of Daredevil. Was it 165 with Frank Miller's art and Mackenzie's story? That's right. It was a Haitian barbershop. Um, I want to say it was on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. I would have been probably seven or eight at the time. Being in a barbershop can take a while. Sometimes people like to talk, and there's more talking than actually haircutting, and you can be there for hours, and it was definitely one of those scenarios. I remember it being summer and hot. I also remember closing that comic book and immediately wanting more, wanted to find out what happened next. I don't think I did for many, many years, probably until I was an adult. I was hooked. And that might not be the first time I read a comic, but it was the first time I remember. Well, as you continue with comics, I guess it was tough to, at times to see yourself in them. 
And this has been changing more in recent years, and you're part of the driving force to make that change now. Now, I understand books like Luke Cage, Black Lightning didn't speak to you at the time, given that you had more of a middle-class upbringing. Those comics are more street-level action, crime, drugs, etc. One book that did strike a very emotional chord with you was that final issue of Power Man and Iron Fist, number 125. And I had it in my reading pile, and I was meaning to get to it, because I have all these books I bought recently. And so I read it last night. You know, and interestingly about that book, the writer, Jim Owsley, would later go under the name Christopher Priest and start writing Black Panther under the Marvel Knights imprint. And the artist in the book, Mark Bright, would eventually partner with him to write Valiant's Quantum and Woody. So would you share with me why that particular comic book of Power Man and Iron Fist was so impactful and inspirational for you? I read it before Jim Owsley came on. Once he did came on, the character of the book changed. It was... It was always like a funny action comedy uh, throughout the 70s and the 80s when they uh, paired up. Um, under Joe Duffy, it got a lot funnier and a, more, a lot more character driven. And she wrote it like in, I want to say, the 70s, not the, not the decade, but the issue count. I want to say 80s, 90s. But um, Priest, he, he ramped all of that up. I mean, he was obviously at the time. So I, I loved the book. Though. Like their friendship very, felt very fraught. There was a lot of melodrama funny situations that had like this sarcastic edge to them all and to see that all end with such raw tragedy with 125 was awful you know as i've written about they said it was the final issue and you're like ah comic book cover text says all kinds of stuff all the time right (laughs) right so i didn't necessarily believe it but then you know i saw what happened and the the air finality to it all like hit me like a ton of bricks and i feel like oh wow i'm not gonna see my favorite guys anymore and, you know, what happens in that issue, Iron Fist being pummeled to death by a Captain Hero who, you know, was being driven into like this uh, blind rage because of a tragic illness he had was really rough. And to see Luke get blamed for it and Luke not have a way to kind of plead his case felt really messed up. And it felt like, yeah, they're locking him into that stereotype box of being an ex-con, of being, you know, a hot-headed black dude with like murderous, savage tendencies. That resonated with me a lot. And it was also, you know, one of the things, my most vivid memories of reading that comic for the first time was reading the editor's note from Denny O'Neill at the end, getting a sense of the politics of comics, getting a sense of how much the creators put into it. You know, his disappointment and rage and frustration was palpable um, in that editor's note. And he stood up for his, his, the creators on that book. And then when Priest wrote about it years later, you know, they heard they were going to cancel and he was like, Part of my land is fuck it, you know, like let's burn it down if they're gonna uh, pull out the the floor from under us. Um, so all of those things, it was a very powerful like moment in the aggregate. All those different things combining together to end that way. Like my my relationship with that series. I don't know if I knew Owsley was black then. I probably suspected it. And they used to show pictures of staff in Marvel Age. It was a series that would promote other comics, changes in creative teams, um, upcoming events and storylines, um, and also some staff bios. So I don't know if I'd seen a picture of him then. That was one of the factors. This kind of buddy comedy with characters from different socioeconomic statuses. That's something that I loved about that book because I was a black kid growing up in the suburbs of Long Island and going to a school, a Catholic school with a bunch of kids who were clearly more well-off than me. So the idea that you could bridge that kind of what felt like a yawning chasm, the the idea that you could bridge that and have real friends across that divide was meaningful to me. And then it all ended, you know, all that stuff ended. Um, And I was like, well, damn, um, where am I going to get this now? That's my very long-winded rambling way of talking about what that issue meant to me. Yeah, I can understand. I read it last night, and like that last page, that was it. Like There was nothing after. It was like the end. And back then, you didn't have rumors on the internet, spoilers. You didn't even have diamond catalogs, so you didn't even know it was coming until you picked the book up. And like you said, anything could be on the cover. You know, someone dies, and then they're back. So, yeah, if that is something that you really loved, and especially two characters like that with a brotherhood, it really must have hit you in the gut, like you said. Did you go on to read Quine and Woody later on? Yeah, I interviewed Priest um, when they bought it back years ago. Valiant did the Q2 series, and I interviewed him about that. And yeah, so I read Quantum and Woody, I think the whole run twice, and that's great. It is. It's one of the strongest books of the V2 universe. Like I read the first universe, the first run of Valiant, and I stuck around for the second one, and the characters were all very different. And this was something actually original to 
the V2 universe. This wasn't a reboot of any kind. And it was a really funny, solid book. I would laugh out loud at that book. It was just wonderfully written. The first one is really interesting because people always remember it as this comedy book. But man, it was dark. And I talked to him about that. It was it was incredibly raw. There was all these like unresolved grudges and resentments that were floating around um, that informed the characters' behaviors. And it's kind of a hallmark of Priest's work and his approach to character construction. Um, and it was really at its utmost in, in that series. You know, you've been writing about comics for over 10 years now. Do you feel a deep connection with your analysis of comic book writing? Did that help you prepare to be a writer and write your first comic book, what else have you done outside your education, you know, at NYU, to help you prepare for your first comic book? Um, you know, I think my, my career as a journalist and a critic has certainly helped me. You know, like, uh, journalism is still storytelling, and I've been working as a journalist, whether it's been a fact checker early on, nailing down important facts, even if they come from other people's reporting, you know, story structure, um, how to create drama and curiosity, those are parts of journalism, nonfiction writing as well. So um, that's all helped. I don't read as much as I used to nowadays, but um, being an avid reader just lets you soak up story and a love of words and a love of language and like the texture of a well-written sentence. You know, and being a critic, yeah, has helped. I write about the stuff I like and don't like and figure out why I don't like it and don't like it and put those thoughts into words and present them to other people who either agree or disagree. That's all helped, you know, like, I'm writing the kind of Black Panther story I would like to read, which may sound kind of selfish. The only reason I'm doing this is because I love this character, you know, which isn't to say if I had a shot with another character, um, I wouldn't have taken it. I'm writing a, a story about T'Challa that I want to be told. My career as a critic has let me know that this story hasn't been told. And that was part of me finding my way in. And the reason I got this gig is because I was a critic and I was interviewing um, Tallahassee. So, yeah, all those things come into play when it comes to the actual work of crafting this series. Now, you know, some people might think you had a lucky break writing such an important character, especially for Marvel. Now, it did help that you were friends with writer Tanahasi, and networking is an essential part of breaking into the business, period. You just can't get around that. However, you didn't lobby for the job. You were invited first to write Rise of the Black Panther by Coates and then by the series editor. So your knowledge of comics and your critical writing skills and analysis about comics helped, for sure. And there are people trying to break into comics that also write reviews. What advice would you give those seeking to make that transition from writing about comics to writing comics? Because it's not easy. During the course of our rekindled friendship, Ta-Nehisi was like, Evan, you really should be like thinking about writing comics. I'm like, yeah, I know. And not to sound self-aggrandizing, but I had heard that before from people who admire my writing. But you know, I, I, did, I never wanted to be perceived as a critic who was a frustrated creator. and writing about the medium um, he wanted to enter in the hopes of creating a path for himself there. Like that was never a goal of mine. So he'd been saying that stuff and I kind of been doing the virtual version of politely nodding. But the time where that final conversation kind of happened, he's like, it's not, this is not coming from me. This is coming from Will, uh, from our editor, Will Moss. He wants to know if you're interested. So I was like, okay. So that, that's kind of what did it. As far as the rest of your question, you know, I mean, the thing for me is I feel like I'm telling a story that's suited to my particular skills. You know, I'm not doing a story that has like a ton of romance. I'm not doing a story that has like things that I can't write. I'm telling a story that is essentially like a character study that folds in what I know about the character's history and finds angles into possible character dynamics between the, the members of the cast by virtue of how I understood their character creation. You know, there's um, a lot of Hunter in this series because he's one of my favorite Black Panther characters. My approach to writing him is, hey, okay, knowing what we knew from when this character was introduced and then the lore was changed, uh, what are the tensions and interactions he must have had with other characters? And this is not necessarily by like editorial fiat, but part of this series is trying to combine and streamline as much as previously written early T'Challa lore as I can. So um, me bringing back Inyami to flesh her out as a character uh, was because, you know, I know she was there. She existed, but we T'Challa had a birth mother that we never knew. So I want to revisit 
who she was. It was also me thinking, well, we never saw the first time that Ramonda and, and T'Challa met. Well, what, what could that have been like? So, you know, you think about these questions that pop up if you know the lore, then you figure out ways to answer them. And then but the, those answers have to come from within the places where the characters must have been psychologically at the time. And that's part of being a critic. So that's can be kind of wrapping up back to your actual <laughs> question. But that's that's part of being a critic. It's like, OK, um, how do I understand this material? What do I understand about the creator's uh, ambitions and how they worked and didn't work and were iterated on by later creators. That's very much a part of uh, the engine that I'm using to um, create this work. Well, to get everything right in continuity, you had to do your homework. And I want to name some important runs. Of... Let's not say I got everything right. Let's not. <laughs> well, it seems that way to me, but it's, it's um... a bugbear that's been that's been haunting me this this whole series. Okay. And you might be the first person I told this to. Tanasi and I, we talk privately, and we're in a group uh, chat with him and Yona Harvey. Yona Harvey is a poet um, and academic who is his co-writer on Black Panther and the Crew. And I think she also wrote, co-wrote with um, Roxanne Gay on World of Wakanda. Um, I could be wrong on that. But one of the things Tanahasi said in the group chat was like, I was the biggest Black Panther nerd I know. And let me just say categorically, that's not true. Um, I'm sure there's other people out there, um, many of them that know, that can quote chapter and verse, first appearance of characters and story lore and stuff like that. But what I do know is I've always been thinking about this character. I've always been thinking about what his emotional state must have been like during a particular creative run, what other characters must have been reacting and thinking about at the time. Like I've, my, my mantra as a critic, as a writer, is it's not just showing what you know, it's how you use what you know. So, you know, I've written articles about comics where um, I wrote an article about the question years ago um, and how it's my favorite run of comics to read when I'm depressed. And I talked about, you know, various issues and somebody in the comments was like, well, and there was a sideways crossover with Watchmen where Rorschach showed up in one issue. I was like, yes, I knew about it. But it was not Jermaine. Bringing that up was not Jermaine to making the point. I was making the article. So again, it's about how you use what you know. And that's my approach to this. It's not to read the Wikipedia entry and be like, okay, try out all these characters. It's not that. It is to figure out how I can use these characters to create a portrait of Wakanda and T'Challa um, at this moment in his life. I'm trying to, as much as I can, to get everything right and to be kind of pointedly explicit about where I'm changing things, which isn't to say like there's a big blowing red neon arrow. Yeah, there are things that have changed in this story with regard to T'Challa's past um, that I felt like it would change for make a better story, not out of spite for anything that came before. The pressure of trying to get everything right with a character that has like 50 some odd years of continuity in publishing history is daunting. If I have to make the choice between getting it quote unquote right and telling the story the best way that I can, I have to choose the latter. And then the folks at Marvel have been really great about that. Well, that's completely understandable because you have the entire world checking facts and it's you writing the one story. So, you know, it's, it's not fair to make sure that you get every single thing right. And that's not always necessary, not necessarily Marvel's way of approaching their books anyway. I mean, there is too much there history-wise. And there's been a lot of Black Panther series over the decades and some very important ones and my listeners not might be familiar with all of them but as a critic and also as a writer of the current series I want to just mention a few runs and if you could tell me any key points about that run that you recall or that is being worked into the series not exactly tying to it but anything about the character or some element you may have pulled out of it like the very first appearance Stan and Jack wrote in Fantastic Four number 52 and 53 any thoughts about that that you've taken from that initial appearance and used in your work? I've read those first two issues uh, probably like once a week since I've been writing this series. That might be a slight over-exaggeration, but I've certainly read it a lot. And one of the things that strikes me is um, T'Challa's been planning for years. He's already the Black Panther. He's already the king. There's already this, all this technological infrastructure in Wakanda. And, you know, he says he's been planning for years. When he... Um, lures the Fantastic Four to Wakanda, he, you know, he has all the traps ready, right? When he um, faces down Claw, he says he's been planning and waiting for years to, to get his vengeance on him. And the idea that he was a planner 
is paramount, and that's what Priest went back to in his uh, series and his decision to make T'Challa this master strategist whose full kind of genius has never been really revealed to the world. And going into this series, I had some concerns. I'm like, okay, well, how masterful should I make T'Challa at this point? Like, how um, how much planning has he been doing? How much, you know, awareness does he have of the outside world? And the answer is, yeah, he's probably been planning, right? But he probably hasn't had much awareness about of the outside world, you know? He's still going to be surprised by things. He's still going to be caught flat-footed. And he's going to have to improvise. And issue three, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, is going to show him figuring out stuff on the fly when confronted with new situations. The reason he's able to do that is because he has been gaming out what he knows about the world, what he knows about Wakanda, and what he'll need to do to get Wakanda to the place where he wants it to be in terms of like the global political community. So uh, Fantastic Four, 52 and 53... That, that's what I took away from those. He's a planner. He's been planning ever since the day his father died in front of him. Um, and he's been figuring out what Wakanda what needs to be and what he's gonna, what he's going to need to be to get it there. And that's kind of the story of Rise of the Black Panther. That's Dan and Jack. Hit me with what's next. <laughs> well, the first series that I read was uh, The Jungle Action, Don McGregor and Billy Graham. That one was a lot more brutal, I think, uh, a lot more physical and beautifully drawn, too. How about from that series? Any elements from that? T'Challa is very much a philosopher in, in those uh, stories. Uh, McGregor uh, wrote a lot of highly stylized prose during that series. And, you know, like T'Challa would go off on these tangents about, you know, the nature of man and war and what it means to be a king and all that stuff. Uh, so, that you know, that made me think that T'Challa is somebody who stays in his head a lot. He's very philosophical. He's also very compassionate. And he's very, you know, tortured. The main characteristic that McGregor put into that series, uh, into the character rather, as in that series, is that T'Challa has wants and needs that are in direct conflict with his duties as a king of a isolated nation, and that tension is one that stayed with the character ever since. I don't that that stuff is really not there in the Lee Kirby um, stories, and it's not really there. Um, in the Avengers stories, where he was written by Roy Thomas, that stuff starts with McGregor. Um, the idea that like heavy uh, lies the head that wears the crown. That stuff started with McGregor. For Graham, that man is somebody who loved black people, um, was a black person, and wanted to put everything he loved about being black in those pages. Like there is that famous page where Monica and T'Challa are in silhouette. And um, standing next to each other, it's like something you would have found like on a greeting card back in the day. That's not to make light of it. It's just like you know, it's such a pure distillation of emotion and emotional connection between two uh, a black people, like a man and a woman. It just comes off the page like these powerful waves. You can also tell there's a lot of artistic ambition with Graham's composition and his layout. Um, and his draftsmanship, his line work, like he's a really amazing technical artist for that time. In a time where a lot of Kirby influence was still present throughout the line, he definitely took it in a different direction. Billy Graham, I can't say enough about him. Like he drew uh, Luke Cage as well. And you know, he, he was trying to put Black is Beautiful, the slogan of the age, of the day then. He was trying to put that on the page. So those are two things that I pulled away from those stories. Now, Jack Kirby's run on Black Panther, I bought that off the spinner rack, and that was very different to me because I was used to the Stan and Jack version, and it just seemed more sci-fi and a lot more technology involved in there. I guess if you were looking at the technology of Wakanda, you'd kind of get it from that, from Jack's mind of how he developed uh, equipment and machines, but anything from that series? One thing that was a surprise revisiting that stuff. I didn't buy it off the spinner rack. I read that all stuff piecemeal, catch as catch can. And then I did I did a more dedicated, focused reading in preparing for this stuff. But one thing that sticks out from that stuff is there's a lot of family members <laughs> um, <laughs> um, in that series and a lot of functionaries. He gave you the idea that, yeah, Wakanda was this place that had a lot going on that we never see, um, that you only see from the inside. There's like a court advisor. I forget his name, but he's got white hair and big bushy white eyebrows. And he's like, he never shows up again. I don't think anybody used him again. But he's he's there when T'Challa's away. 
kind of helping run the country. There are the cousins who become the Black Musketeers, which is, look, not a great idea. It's kind of corny um, and very dated. But, you know, they're like, hey, okay, it's our job to help defend Wakanda, too. And there are other characters that I can't talk about without spoiling them. I'm planning to use them in in the series. But all those uh, characters are um, an interesting facet of that run because a lot of times um, in other comics, it made it seem like T'Challa was pretty much it. Like, there was a few other characters that were in his orbit. But with Kirby, he really built out this idea that there was like a a bustling royal court full of its own intrigues not unlike you know in humans but yeah that's one aspect of that that I've, I've taken away from it and you know like you said the technology and stuff and there's some outlandishness that was very big and bold and Kirby-esque obviously you know we talk about the character now we think about a very serious like uh psychologically grounded um, approach to the character but you know this was like the late 60s early 70s and and Kirby could do those things and he would go on to do them like in New Gods, but he wasn't doing that here. It was like, this was like an action strip that was like punchy, villain of the month stuff, melodramatic, overheated political intrigue stuff. Now, I'm sure there's plenty that you're mining from the Christopher Priest run during Marvel Knights. I am vociferous to the point of probably being annoying about my love of Christopher Priest and this run. You know, the main thing... For me, is that like people always talk about this run and how badass he made T'Challa, but I feel like people always miss the point. T'Challa is not happy in this comic. T'Challa is not at peace with himself. We don't have like an, a lot of internal access to his wants and needs and emotions. And when we do, he's never happy. My favorite storyline in this run is Storm and Drong, which happens, I think, from 27 to 30. The world's at the brink of war because there's a child that the deviants want back. So Lord Gore, the high priest, can, can kill the child. Um, and the child's like, yeah, that's not happening. All these nations posture and rattle their, their sabers. Atlantis, Geosha, Deviant Lemuria, Latveria is in the mix a little bit because there's a non-aggression pact, apparently, between Wakanda and Latveria. And all this stuff starts to boil over. Missiles get launched. An American battlecruiser gets uh, hit. Battlecruiser is not the word. Aircraft carrier is the word I was looking for. All this stuff happens, and T'Challa is doing what he has to do what he feels like is right um, and morally justifiable. Some of that is barely more ju- morally justifiable, but um, he's not happy. There's a scene in there where um, Storm has come to visit and they're catching up and the child takes his mask off and he says, I'm scared, Aurora. I don't know everything. This rawest window into what he must be feeling inside. You know, that coupled with the idea that priest seeds throughout the run that T'Challa is, you know, forever mourning his dad, forever in awe of the the work his dad did to secure Wakanda and the way he died um, in service of that duty is really bracing. Um, my favorite line in the entire run of that series is from Black Panther number 30. After all the kind of political chaos has kind of settled down a little bit and T'Challa's called in front of a congressional hearing to answer about what's happened and, and Everett Ross is defending him to the congressman, Later on, he meets with Captain America. The the A story in that was T'Challa, rather T'Chaka, and Captain America meeting during the 1940s. And Cap went trading one of his original uh, triangle shields for a chunk of vibranium that would presumably later get made into the circle shield, um, into the formula, uh, the alloy that the circle shield was made out of. Anyway, so they're having this talk, and Cap says, you know, T'Challa, you're like the most noble man I've known. And T'Challa says, nonsense. I'm but the merest reflection of he who sent me, the great king T'Chaka. And you just know, like, he feels like he has this impossible legend to live up to. You know, probably a disproportionate idea of a person driven by his own emotional kind of attachment to that person. But yeah, he feels like my dad was like a freaking god. And all I'm trying to do is, is carry on what he's doing. And to do that, I have to be terribly unhappy. And that's a, that's the main takeaway of that run is that T'Challa, you know, chafes probably a little bit under the role of being king. He does it because he has to. You get a sense that, like, it wears on him. And the other stuff that Priest would add into that run, you know, the brain, the brain aneurysm and some of the other stuff was, like, I think all symbolic of the toll that this mantle takes on T'Challa. And so... I took all that stuff, T'Challa being unhappy, this role of being king being an emotionally and physically taxing one, and I built that into 
the reluctance that Inyami had to have children. Like a mother knows that if your child is going to be king, then your child is probably not going to be happy a lot of the time, depending on what kind of king and what kind of child um, they've been raised to be. And I took some of the loneliness, playing with that a little bit. If we can skip ahead to Hudlin, once you introduce Shuri into the mythos, then T'Challa's whole psychology, I feel, changes. If you think about everything up until the Hudlin run and Shuri, T'Challa's an only child which means the burden is all the more heavy. But once Shuri comes along, okay, you have somebody to talk to about this stuff, somebody who's been there from day one. Not quite day one, there's a difference in their age, but somebody who knows in an intimate, personal way the history of this family and this country. Once that happens, you have somebody to talk to. That doesn't mean all the other stuff bleeds away, um, the emotional angst and all that stuff, but uh, you have somebody to share to. Um, and so somebody to whom you can't just order you can't just shoo them away. They're like, hey, you're my sister. You're my brother. You're my brother. You can't play that king nonsense with me. Tell me what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I play with that a little bit. But yeah, so the Hudlin, the other stuff about Hudlin is that, you know, he just makes T'Challa a lot more relatable. The highfalutin speech patterns kind of go away. He's more like a dude from around the way. He definitely doubled down on the idea that Wakanda is a nation ruled by a warrior cult. You know, these, these people fight all the damn time, each other, other people, um, and they fight all the damn time because they have this legacy of being unconquered that they need to preserve. So there's some of the baddest warriors on the earth and they've got the baddest technology on the earth. That's out of necessity. And so there's a cockiness and a confidence to Wakanda and T'Challa under Hudlin that has not really been shown before. So I'm using a little bit of that and also, of course, Storm. Um, the relationship with uh, T'Challa and Storm is the key takeaway, one of the key takeaways from that series. And, uh, you know, that's something that's continued on to the ta run. I don't want to gloss over any questions you have, so I'm going to stop talking now. That's perfectly fine, because I was going to ask about Reginald Hudlin next. So, And you already covered that. So moving into ta Coates. Now, he is credited on your book as well, because you are working together to make sure that what you're writing, that arc, fits in with the Black Panther that's being written in the present day. By Tanahasi. How's that going working with Tanahasi and trying to keep things tight in continuity? Let's go back for a second because I want to talk about Hickman, oh, who yes. I feel like is somebody who um, we have to acknowledge as putting a few important layers of lore and mythos onto the character. Um, with Hickman, we get, again, invoking this deep sense of history and legacy. Um, that the character, if we're inside the fictional world, like must be aware of and linked to, right? And making a, an explicit part of his, for lack of a better word, power set, right? Like T'Challa, now, when he becomes King of the Dead under Hickman in Fantastic Four, he's able to pull on his history, like in a very literal way, right? Like, so if he was a master strategist before on the priest, like he's even doubly so now because he can be like, oh yeah, this is that one time my ancestor faced down these invaders who tried this strategy, I can pull on that. It's not written as such, but the idea is that, okay, I have access to my past in a very real way. He can talk to his ancestors. And then knowing the long game that Hickman was playing throughout his tenure at Marvel, that all culminates to that amazing scene in Secret Wars where T'Challa is ordering out a dead army to help storm Doom's um, castle. But so that that's part of it. And the other part that Hickman did um, was in New Avengers, making T'Challa central and prominent in the Illuminati and the elite of the elites. There's no more question about whether Black Panther is an A-list character or not. He is. He's rolling with the other ones. He's um, at the forefront of trying to save all of existence from multiversal collapse. So he's there. We, we don't have to talk about this anymore. That and creating this frenemy relationship between T'Challa and Namor, which was there a little bit in the past, but he really deepened it. Um, in a way that I think has become uh, something that's forever going to be linked between the two characters. It makes sense. They're both kings, and they both have abrasive personalities. T'Challa can be more cool and aloof. Namor is more brash and hot-headed. So obviously, I pulled on that stuff for Rise of the Black Panther 2, which came out this week. But yeah, Hickman added a ton to T'Challa as a character in uh, lots of beautiful stories. Is there any other run, anyone else, that's essential to the Black Panther mythos? I don't know if it's essential, but I love Jason Aaron's two-parter from Secret Invasion, uh, See Wakanda and Die, where the scrolls invade Wakanda and they feel like, oh yeah, you know, it's a little African country, 
they've got that one guy um, we've heard about and proceed to get completely owned by T'Challa and Storm and the Wakandans. And again, that's something that's just like, hey, everybody in this country, everybody in this country is ready to go at all times. They're, you know, they're ready to answer the call and kick ass in ways that you are not necessarily going to expect and uh, with a ferocity and intensity and a cunning and st- a strategical genius that you're probably not expecting either. So fuck with Wakanda at your peril. <laughs> well, now you're two issues into the story. How's the reception been? What kind of email you're getting, social media responses, in person? In person, it's been great. It's been largely positive. You know, I'm not trying to read too many reviews, um, which is a weird place to find myself in because I'm somebody who's written reviews of creative work. So I have a curiosity there that I can't fully satisfy, but there's all kinds of reasons not to do that, which are obvious. I don't want like people's opinions to necessarily divert me from what I want to do. But it's been largely positive. People seem to like it. And that makes me feel good. You know, there's obviously all this ambient excitement in the air about um, Black Panther because of the movie. I've been asked to talk a lot about that in various media outlets, and that's been fun. I'm largely doing what I want to do. Um, I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing on the series. Um, I've been blessed to have ridiculously talented artistic collaborators. Paul Renault on issue one is just utterly stunning work. The amount of detail um, that he's able to portray, while also at the same time, the emotional kind of acting that he puts in characters' faces and body language and stuff is great. He's amazing. Javier Pina is an artist who I used to love back in the day, um, and I'm really glad to be having him on the other issues that Paul's not writing, rather drawing. Paul's on one and three, and Javier's on two, four, five, and six. At least that's the plan right now. Will might kill me if um, that doesn't happen, but I think we're on track uh, to have all those things happen. Javier's great. The colorist is Stefan Patro, who uh, I believe is a friend of Paul Renault's. I, I tweeted about this. He's literally like waving a magic wand on these pages and making them look like these beautifully variegated tones um, across the page. There's stuff he's doing that, that is not in the script. There's stuff he's doing that's using light sources to draw your eye across the page and highlight things that need to be seen and, you know, making certain colors pop. I remember having these conversations with ta when he started getting his finished pages in for like his first couple of issues. He's like, man, Laura Martin. And I'm like, I know, but he's like, no, you don't understand. To be on this end of it and writing these pages and then seeing this come out that is in a way that's more vivid than it was in your brain, that's like a stunning thing. And that's what colorists do. I feel like I better understand colorists now that I've actually become a comics creator than I did as a comics critic, if that makes any sense. And that could just be my feeling as a critic. I know there are other critics who have long championed colorists as unsung heroes. Uh, Asher Elbine did a great piece for The Atlantic, I believe, about colorists. Yeah, so that could just be me not being as aware or articulate of the importance, but certainly from now on out, I'm going to look at the uh, accounts page totally differently. So yeah, you know, and Will Moss and Sarah Brunstad have been great um, as editors to work with. They've challenged me in the right places. They've been receptive to some of the uh, weirder or unexpected things I want to do. They've been awesome. And the art change up over the issues, is that planned? I mean, is that the way you stylistically you need each issue to look? No, no, no. This was this is just a matter of scheduling. We want to get the book out uh, on a monthly schedule. And um, I think this is just a matter of speed and availability, which happens sometimes in comics, you know. But, you know, I'm lucky to have two really good artists on this series. Well, they work together well, because I'm a stickler about an artist being the same throughout a series, a miniseries, but it's not jarring at all. I mean, they do fit together very well, especially when you have the same colorist too working on the book. It kind of helps bind all that yes. together, but there's yeah. no radical changes or, you know, styles, I should say. Yeah, yeah, their styles are very complementary to each other. There are some very important themes addressed in the book as well, and one of them is the xenophobia the Wakanda nation has based on fear of being exploited by other nations or people for their natural resources, vibranium. And I can see the concerns about breaking protocol and long-held traditions by a society. And I think about it in terms of when you see members of the royal family in England, like I'm watching The Crown, and somebody breaks protocols like, well, that's not how it's done. You know, why are you doing that? Or I think of the martial arts where, you know, Bruce Lee went out and started to train Westerners and show them the techniques and develop his own style. His teachers were like, what are you doing? You don't do that. You don't share that information. So people, when you change things, 
and you're going to go outside of protocol, they get nervous. And T'Challa is an iconoclast in this regard, that he wants to engage the outside world from a position of strength. And this is a very important theme because I fear here in our U.S. government's leadership, it's becoming more xenophobic by, for example, trying to build walls. Yeah, part of that's intentional. You know, I don't want this to be a one-to-one commentary on the current state of political affairs in the United States. But I do think, you know, we've seen from history, isolationism is hard on the global community and uh, the countries that choose it as a modus operandi. You know, like the, the United States was very isolationist up until World War II, after the First World War and before it. You know, we weren't we weren't trying to be like altruistic with the economic and political power that we wielded. And I feel like part of that attitude made the United States a target for other countries around the world. And I feel like the United States' um, relative position of global dominance in certain areas is always going to make them a target, right? But when you say, well, we want things to be unilateral or, or we don't care about the fate of the rest of the world, despite all this power that we have, um, that sends a message about the character of uh, your leadership um, and your populace. It, those messages can be wrong or misguided. Um, and I feel like that's that's the stuff that I want to have T'Challa working through in this series. Um, in issue two, he says, those are my favorite lines to write. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, but like, you know, what if the Fantastic Four didn't beat Galactus? You know, we, we'd just be standing around beating our drums about being unconquered um, while the planet's crust boiled underneath us. You're part of a larger organism. If you don't devote resources, mental kind of bandwidth, if you don't devote those things to the larger organism you're part of, you could find yourself suffering the illness that the larger organism is suffering. T'Challa sees that, you know, but also he's like, you know, look, we've been saying we're the best and the baddest. We, we've been saying that we're like this amazing country. If we keep all that to ourselves, nobody's going to know. Let's prove it. That's part of the ethos that's driving him in this series. He's um, trying very much to make sure that people in Wakanda realize that things have to change because the world is changing around us. And if we don't change and try and keep up and keep our advantage. The asymmetrical relationship we've had with the rest of the world, we're gonna be on the wrong end of it. Very much part of the way T'Chaka dies is because Wakanda's intelligence, for as amazing as it is, like doesn't know that somewhere, someone knew just enough about their defenses to subvert them and cause chaos enough that allowed T'Chaka to be killed. And for me, that's a driving motivation for T'Challa being a strategist and a planner. We need to know what's out there so we can reckon with it. That's something that comes from Freeze, but I feel like the explicit kind of parental aspect of it, parental death aspect of it, I want to tie a little bit closer together. On to some lighter and more fun topics. The movie's coming out in about a week since we're having this conversation. It's about a week from now. And I'm really excited about it, having seen the trailers. My son's really excited about it. He keeps asking me when it's coming out, what day is that, you know, what day of the month. He's six. Have you seen it yet? Yeah, I was I was lucky enough to be at the um, United States premiere in L.A. on the 29th. The movie's amazing. It tells its own Black Panther story that nods at some of the stuff that's been written in other media. And it's beautiful. I think it's, you know, I have some obvious biases, but I think it's the best movie Marvel's done so far. I'm really looking forward to it. Really excited about it. Just have to get a sitter so I can go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get that sitter. Yeah. Now, just some fun questions as we wrap up, getting towards the end here. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? What's that? I get that answer a lot. <laughs> when you can. Hang out with my daughter. Um, she's seven and full of energy and, and personality. And I just want to make sure with as busy as I am with a day job and this, um, that I'm getting to spend enough time with her and, and knowing who she is and who she's growing into. And that that's the main thing. You know, I don't play video games recreationally as much as I used to. That's the problem with having work as a game journalists and critics, I feel like I should be writing about this every time I play a game, whether it's for fun or not. So that's not great. I try to read, you know, I don't read as much as I used to. One of the problems with moving outside of New York City is all the train time that I used to have to read a book um, is gone now. And I, I need to actively carve out time to, to read. And I have not been great about doing that of late with so many other things I'm doing. And plus, 
reading for fun is also a, feels like a luxury at this point because I'm almost always reading for work anyway. Something, a comic book or non-illustrated work is got to be up in my list of things to do. That's the same problem I have right now. Now, my hypothetical question to ask all my guests, since it ties into reading, if you were stuck on a deserted island, what's the one book you'd want to have with you? Either something you'd like to read again and again or something you haven't had a chance to read yet. If I had to pick a book to read again and again, it would probably be The White Boy Shuffle by Paul Beatty, um, one of my favorite books of all time. If I could cheat the two volumes of um, Walter Mosley's Easy Rollins novels and Robert B. Parker's Spencer novels, I love those series a lot. There's a lot of machismo seething through them, and you have to kind of like bounce your reading knowing that that's what you're going to be getting into. But um, I love those books. Now, when you're resting and relaxing, what is your beverage of choice? I'm a brown liquor guy. So um, a friend of mine here in Austin at my first signing um, bought a bottle of Suntory whiskey, Suntory Toki whiskey, and it is a delight. And I am way deeper into that bottle than I want to be um, (laughs) because I can can foresee the day it disappears. Bourbon, whiskey, I'm a cocktail guy. I don't drink a lot of beer. So those are my beverages, adult beverages of choice. And... If an action figure were to be made of you, what would be your accessory? Probably an ascot. What would be my accessory? I don't know. A pen and paper. A pen and a pad. Whenever I I have multiple bags that I keep in rotation, I always try to have a pen and a pad in each of them. You don't know when the idea is going to strike. You want to write it down right away before you forget. Right. (laughs) I'll do that or I'll keep notes on my phone. Either like I'll type them out on my iPhone or I'll just record something. I just want to say, this is my opinion, you know, diehard fans tend to issue miniseries and one-shots, and they say, and I say this in quotes, it doesn't matter, but uh, this series does matter. Each issue is packed full of story. Uh, This is a comic book reader's comic, and I thought about this. This series, to me, is going to be as important, not just in Panther Lore, but I mean, as a series like Ed Brubaker's series was, the miniseries Book of Doom, back in 2005. Don't put that on me. Ugh. (laughs) I'm sorry to say that, but no, it's fine. It's fine. I read it and loved it, but you know, like I'm not on Drew Baker's level at all. Uh, but the importance of the story and how it's tying in with the uh, the entire continuity, but you're you're adding more to it and some very important elements. That's what's key. You know, you're not just revising everything. The goal is very much to write something that mattered. Uh, with with the backdrop of the movie happening and all this awareness. With my love of the character, I want to write something that couldn't just be ignored. You know, I want to write something that mattered. Um, and I feel like I'm doing that. Uh, it matters to me. That's where it starts. It feels like it has a reason to exist. That's the starting point. And I'm going from there. And you're doing a great job. And Evan, thank you so much for being thank on Thank you for having talks. me, Chris. All right, folks. And don't forget, we have that contest. Simply follow and tweet. What is your favorite episode so far of Creator Talks? Make sure you tag at Creator Talks Pod. And the prizes for a winner selected at random will be a copy of Marvel Comics Presents number 23 from 1989. And that contains a Black Panther quest story by Don McGregor, who we talked about in this episode, Gene Colan on pencils, and Tom Palmer on inks. That's the same penciling and inking team famous for their run on Tomb of Dracula. I will also include a copy of Madman Frankenstein in your face 3D special with glasses. And instead of a sheet of stickers, I'm going to include one or two larger stickers of Creator Talks for you to put on your backpack or your lunchbox. Contest ends February 28th at 11.59 p.m. Winner announced on Twitter March 1st. This past weekend was opening weekend for the Black Panther, and I did go see it on Saturday evening with the missus and my six-and-a-half-year-old son. I'm not going to give a review. I'm not going to spoil anything. Just uh, some observations. Number one, it did live up to the hype. So don't worry about that being let down because there's a lot of hype around it and a lot of uh, positive reviews early on. Well, they hold true. This is a great Marvel film. It's a great film, period. It's a superhero movie about the Black Panther, but I never felt like I was watching a superhero movie. It's the movie about a king and his kingdom. There are beautiful images of Wakanda, great characters, great acting. So I highly recommend it. It was fine for the six-and-a-half-year-old. There was one or two curse words, but no F-bombs, nothing really, really vulgar at all. There was hand-to-hand combat, but no gratuitous violence either. 
Now, my son would hide his eyes at certain parts of the film because there was a fight scene. He was worried about the Black Panther winning. And I'm like, son, it's called Black Panther. I think he's going to pull through. But it's charming how he was uh, so excited about it and so worried about the Black Panther. That's, uh, it's great to have that childlike innocence of seeing something and not knowing what's going to happen. And so uh, that was a lot of fun. I did see the movie in a standard screening. I did not see it in IMAX or in 3D. Those showings were sold out and the theater was bumping when we got there and when we left. Of course, it's opening weekend. You'd expect that, but it was really great to see such a wonderful turnout for the film. There are mid-credit and end-credit scenes, so stick around for those. Again, all I will say now is that it was a fantastic movie, and I know it was good because my wife even said, you know, I would watch that again. There was so much to see. And that, my friends, is high praise. And I'll close with this update coming up Thursday at its regularly scheduled time. Creator Talks welcomes David Leach, the editor of Fighting American, being published by Titan Comics. It was another great interview I'm excited about sharing with you this month of February. So please join me next time. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks this week. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and also on Amazon Echo and Dot Devices. Just say, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks to hear the latest episode. In addition, you can listen to the show and follow it through Podbean. Your feedback is greatly appreciated, so please rate and review on iTunes if you like the show or an episode that you heard. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to helping the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking a bit of time to do that. For your convenience, in the show notes of each podcast, I have a link to my iTunes page where you can rate and review the show and see the entire list of shows available. If you haven't heard them all, take a look through. There are living legends and -and up-and-coming comic creators. Tell family and friends who like comics and comic book creators about the show. And to subscribe. The content is free. Just as valued are your comments and feedback. You can reach me through Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. You can also reach out to me by email. You can find that at my website, creatortalks.com. At the website, you will also find blog posts, reviews of books that I have read that you might want to read too, my catalog of podcasts, and videos and other written articles on the website, creatortalks.com. A hearty thank you to all my guests. It is an honor and a privilege for you to make time to be on the show and talk to me about your work. It is your knowledge and insight into the creative process that makes the show so unique. My thanks also goes out to my family who makes this show possible, especially my executive co-producer, Mrs. Calloway. I'll be back each and every Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.